0: At this time, we're going to be turning our attention to the reading and preaching of God's Word. Here today is Erica to read our passage from Colossians. Erica.
1: Our reading today is from Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. But Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning, either here in the sanctuary or online. We are glad that you are here this morning. We are beginning a series this week from Colossians 3 around the theme of resurrection. Last week, we talked about the resurrection of Jesus, how real it was and how powerful it was. And this week we want to talk, a, begin a series on what the resurrection means to a Christian believer. Because at the center of the New Testament, and certainly at the center of the Apostle Paul's writings, is this idea that the resurrection changes everything. To Paul, the resurrection of Jesus literally ushered in a new age the last days, as the Bible calls them. And every Christian, according to the gospel, every Christian, when they express their faith in Jesus Christ, they enter this new age. And they enter into the power that the resurrection brings with it. A power over sin, a power over evil, and eventually a power over death that most of the world does not know. When I talk to skeptics at our church uh, many times or new Christians who've just become Christians, what I hear constantly is that they were attracted to Christianity by the power that they saw in Christians, the power to love, the power to be patient, the power to forgive, the power to have peace in trials and afflictions. And yet, interestingly, when I talk to Christians… I hear a very different thing. I hear something that I actually myself also feel, and that is this. A longing, an almost agonized groaning for more spiritual power. For greater ability to stop temptation. To stop falling into patterns of selfishness and sin. And so what do we do? Well, in the history of the Christian church, we're famous for seeking that power in Outside places, outside experiences, outside exercises and activities of self-denial and ascetic lifestyles. We seek power in gaining knowledge, biblical and theological. That's probably the one my tribe is most guilty of. Now this passage was written to a church in Colossae 2,000 years ago that was struggling with exactly those groanings that most Christians I experience experience have today. And it's exactly the same kind of outside experiences that they were grabbing for, ascetic practices, new moons and sabbaths, all kinds of outside behavioral or activity or ritual or experiences that they felt could give them the power Them good news. I'm only going to focus on the first four verses of the passage today, but the good news is this. If you're a Christian, everything you need For spiritual power, for power over sin, for power to grow in your Christian life is already in you. Because Jesus died for you. He rose for you. He ascended and was seated at the right hand of God for you, as this passage says. And then he sent his spirit to so take all the reality of that dying and rising and being seated that he has physically experienced and give you a taste of that reality spiritually there with Jesus, the power that raised Jesus raises you. Now seated at the right hand of God, so are we who are in spiritual union, died, and you have risen because Christ has. then he died. As our substitute, 1 Corinthians fifteen three, I delivered to you your sin and mine. He did this as the sinless, perfect God man who had none of his own sin to 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 uh, pay for or account for, paid it all. So when Jesus died for our sins, that guilt is now paid for fully. Therefore, we have died to the guilt of our sin. We have died to the condemnation of our sin. And that's sort of the second point. He didn't, we, we didn't just, he didn't just die for us so that we die to the guilt. In dying for us, he removed the alienation. You see, God is a holy God. He hates when people don't love. He hates when people hate. He hates that which is evil, and there is evil inside of us. Our sin, says Isaiah, separates us from a holy God. This guilt creates a response from God. It repels him and angers him. And Jesus allowed the alienation of sin, our separation from God. He allowed that to be put upon him at the cross. Not just our guilt, but God's response to that guilt. God's alienating judgment. That's why you see at the cross, Jesus, who throughout his life said, called God my Father, my Father, my Father. Now at the cross, he says, my God. He has lost that intimacy. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you feel the alienation of that moment? Jesus took our guilt upon himself when he died for us, and he took the alienation from God upon himself when he died for our sins. And die he did. Because sin causes death, and so he allowed sin to have its natural consequences over even him, the God, who became human. Romans 5 says that sin entered the world, and through sin, death, and Jesus, as God became human, entered into the very consequences of sin. Guilt, alienation, and physical death. These invasions into our world, Jesus allowed to wash over him and experience. Therefore. When you become a Christian, you've died to the guilt of your sin. Every sin you ever did, every sin you ever will do is paid for by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient for every sin of every human being and billions more, infinitely more people with infinitely more sins. And so you've died. There is no condemnation. And when you become a Christian, you've died to the alienation of your sin God is no longer your judge. He is your father as he was Jesus' father. You can say Abba Father to him, says Romans 8. And all of his love and all of his pleasure that he pours out on his beloved son is now being poured out upon you because of his beloved son. What an extraordinary gift this union is. He died for our sin, and so our condemnation is gone. Our alienation is gone. But he didn't just die for our sin. Romans 6 says Jesus also died to sin. Romans 6.10, for the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Here, in this description of Jesus dying to sin, Paul in Romans 6 implies the resurrection because he's now living a life to God. So listen to these words, Jesus died to sin. In other words, at his death, Everything that Jesus allowed sin to do to him, to have an effect upon him, is over. He allowed sin to, as it were, be counted against him. He allowed the alienation of God that he should never have felt to be given to him. He allowed physical death, which he should never experience, to be given to him, the God-man, in our place. But that was the last time he would ever allow sin. Such power control, or corrupting influence upon himself. You see, in rising from the dead, sin could no longer corrupt his body by death. Sin could no longer condemn him by guilt. Sin could no longer alienate him from his father. They were done. He had died to their power over him. And so, when a Christian expresses faith in Jesus, Paul says here, spiritually, this is true of us. We have died to sin. Listen to Romans 6, the, the parallel passage for this Colossians 3. It says, If we've been united with him in a death like his, Romans 6, 5, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Do you hear that? He continues, For the one who has died has been set free. We're no longer enslaved. We are set free. That's dying to sin. We've died to its guilt, its condemnation, its alienation. We've died, he died for us. And we've died to all those things. They're not true of us anymore. But here, we've died to the power of sin to dominate us. We don't have to sin anymore. We have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit who raised Jesus from this dead, the Spirit who has re- resurrection power is in us. And with that Spirit and the new life that He has given us, we have the power to stop sin in its tracks. We don't need any special experiences. We don't need any extra theological knowledge. We don't need to walk the El Camino or join a monastery to have true spiritual power. They, they may not be wrong. We may be called to do those things. They may be helpful, but they're not necessary. All that you need is within you. I have, a, as some of you know, a lingering love of cars. Um, and I have a friend who owns a Tesla and he let me drive it. Now I've been in electric cars before and I found them kind of interesting and kind of cool, but not particularly powerful from a performance perspective. But, uh, he said, this is a Tesla. Let me show you pull off on that quiet industrial street where nobody is. Stop the car. Stop the car. He says, okay, punch it. So I hit the gas, floored it, and I literally got jammed into the back of my seats I have a Fiat 500 with a little over 150 horsepower. This Tesla has well over 400 horsepower. What a difference. Unbelievable. Men and women. Too many of us walk around thinking we have a Fiat 500 of power within us. When God's given us a Tesla engine of power to overcome and fight sin and progress in our spiritual walk. Now I, I know I can anticipate the questions flying into the phone. Then why do I still sin? What, why do so many of us struggle? What about people who are addicted? I, I, I get all those things. We're going to talk about those now because in the pathways Paul anticipates two, at least two of the main reasons why we still really struggle. But I'm going to give you Three. The first one I'm going to give you is kind of a theological, historical one. Then the next two are existential ones within us that the pathways are going to speak to. Firstly, the first reason that that we still sin so much is what the Bible seems to indicate is God's plan in history. God has decided that the way he is going to unveil his plan of redemption is to leave Christians in history with many of the same struggles with sin as other people around them have. The same temptations, even the same weaknesses as everybody else, so that Christians can be his ambassadors, his living witnesses, that despite being fully human, being in every way like other people, yet they have a power from God that changes their ability to react and respond to the circumstances and the trials and the brokenness of life and the selfishness and the darkness and the cruelty within them. If we were suddenly perfect somehow as soon as we became Christians and never sinned again, we would be this extraordinarily bizarre other species that nobody could relate to. I think God did this to make us real bridges to life with God for the rest of the world 2 Peter 3.8 says, Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, and that's exactly what I feel is happening with respect to my own personal growth. It's slow. But it's patient toward you, not wishing, wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's something in the plan of God about everybody else that allows us to struggle, that we might be a living, humble witness to them. But there are two other reasons, and they're more personal and existential. And I think this is where Paul is going, and this is where the Colossians were. Firstly, we don't realize, or soon we forget, that we have kind of a Tesla engine of power inside of us. When I was um, in university... Undergrad many moons ago, I drove in with a friend of mine. He was a gearhead and he fixed up cars. He had a 1960 um, Mustang, but he also had a 1969 VW Microbus. And you've seen them in all the movies, those kind of hippie cars that surfers have. Now, a 1960s VW Microbus had a Volkswagen Beetle engine that had all of 50 horsepower in it. And literally, when we were going uphill, we couldn't hit 60 miles an hour. When we were going in a headwind, we couldn't hit 100 kilometers an hour it was that slow it was that underpowered and that's kind of like what I remember back then and what I think of now when I hit the headwinds of trials and afflictions when I'm going uphill against a particularly addictive tendency in myself I don't think I have any power I think I got the engine of a VW microbus no no we have the spirit of the living God in us and the new self in us. We have more than enough power to deal with the trials and afflictions of sins in our life. So I need to ask you this. Those verses I read that said Christ died for our sin, for sin and to sin, and we've died with him, are they true? Are they true? Then you have a Tesla inside of you, in terms of power. Not a VW microbus. Stop listening to lies that allow you to make excuses for why we're continuing in a lot of the sin that we continue in. Are you free from the power of sin to condemn you? Are you? Romans 8. It says because Christ has died and risen, therefore there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in, i.e. who believe in Christ Jesus and are united to him. For the law of the spirit, there he is, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Are you free from his power to condemn? Yes, you are. Have you died to its power to dominate you? Our old self was crucified in him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we'd no longer be enslaved to sin. Yes, this has happened to us. We don't believe or we soon forget what is true. First reason, God's plan in history allows us to keep struggling with sin that we might be effective bridges to an unbelieving world of the reality of Christ. Secondly, we just forget or Don't know how much power God has given us. But thirdly, and here it's going to get a little uncomfortable. We don't really want to access that power. Because we don't really want to leave some of those sinful behaviors, patterns, inclinations, and ways of thinking. We actually prefer our sin. We prefer to use sex exploitively, either physically or on the internet. We love money and the things that it gives us. We love being popular or respected more than we love God. So deep in our hearts, where we tell nobody what's actually going on, in the secret vault of our hearts, we love certain things more than we love God. And we are afraid that if we actually access this power of God, he will ask us to lose these things. God will take them from us. I submit to you, they're your precious men and women. You don't own them and nurse them. You're letting them own you. They become your masters. And Paul knows this and Jesus knows this. The gospel knows you. The gospel knows that the secret vaults in our hearts move in this direction. So now let's look at how these pathways to power deal with these objections that make us struggle so much with sin. There are two imperatives stuck between the two indicatives. You have been raised. You have died. But in between those bookends, there are two imperatives. Seek the things that are above where Christ is and set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. There are the two imperatives. Seek the things above. Set your mind on things above. Seek, the word zeteo there, it's an imperative imperative really means to seek wholeheartedly, to seek with a real intention and desire to, be, to find something. And so that's why some people translate it, it, I think rightly, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated. Make them the, des- the object of your affections. Desire the things above. Set your heart on things above. Here, Paul is being ruthlessly realistic. He knows. That the battle of desire is where this is won or lost. So he starts with the desires of our heart. Men and women, I cannot make your heart long for Jesus and the things of God. I cannot make the joys of communion with Jesus better than the new promotion or the new relationship or the new car or the new condo that you're longing for or that you have. You think they will change your world. I tell you, they will never allow you to change into the image of Christ he's calling you unless you're willing to let them go because you will never experience the power of having died to sin and risen with Jesus until you want that power to die and rise. Several years ago when I was... um, Just out of college and just practicing a couple years in, I went to the Philippines on a missions project. And I was still struggling with issues of lust and pornography and anger. And I went to a retreat, and a man there, the speaker there, said something. He was speaking on this passage, and he said, "'Men and women, you can stop sin in midair right when its temptation over you is its strongest.'" but you got to wanna. And I said, what's got to wanna? So I pulled him aside afterwards. I said, what's got to wanna and how do you do it? He said, got to wanna is the desire to have the power. And how you do it, you have to just fall in love with God more than you fall in love with those things that attract you. You see, until pleasing Jesus... And his father and being in close fellowship with them is more sweet to you, more important to you, more tasteful to you, more delightful to you than the excitement of whatever it is that is your precious. All the guilt and all the don't do its aren't going to work. Thomas Chalmers, revered Puritan pastor and preacher, writing centuries ago picked up this idea when he said these words in his sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. This is what he says. He says, The love of the things of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of their worthlessness, but may it not be replaced by a love of something that is more worthy. Do you hear him? Yes, the things of the world are indeed attractive. They sing to our hearts. They call to our souls. They invite us to love them and desire them. They will not be dethroned easily unless something more lovely comes into the center of your affections and takes over. And so Paul here gives us a clue perhaps as to how to do that. He says where Christ is seated. You see, he says look at Jesus and the place that he's seated on. Because in Jesus, all the sweetness of God is displayed to you and me in all of its winsome beauty. In Jesus, all the glory of God is manifested to us in all of its delightfulness. For in Jesus, we see God himself seated at the Father's right hand, but the God who is seated, dazzling with the dazzling beauty of a thousand stars, still has scars in his wrists. And in his ankles. Imagine him in your mind right now. See the nail marks in him. And the wound on his side. Even in the majestic fullness of his deity. See the glory mixed with the pain. The majesty mixed with the humility. The abject perfection mixed with the servant-hearted willingness to die for you. In my decade-long struggle to be freed from the addictive power of some of these things. Again and again, it is the glory of Jesus, his sweetness and his beauty, the loveliness of Christ himself that has woven its way into the center of my heart and given me fuller and more final freedom from the deepest patterns of sin, and they can do it for you. Men and women, there is a reason why the New Testament focuses so fiercely upon the glory of Jesus himself. It is in the contemplation of him, the meditation on him, the glorying in him and his majestic humility. It is in that meditation and contemplation. It is in the imagination on fire, watching the beauty of Jesus as he comes to. It is there, seeing him assume your guilt, seeing him assume your alienation and take it upon himself, meditating on the fact that he's been thinking about this for billions and billions and billions of years and longer. That the loveliness of Christ himself begins to displace that which is your precious. It is here when we begin to love the things above. And when we love them, the things that attract us down here don't attract us so much. They pale and shrivel in their allure. Set your heart on things above. Secondly, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Paul... It's contrasting two things. He's, he's saying, even if your heart has been captured by the things of God and, and the, the loveliness of Christ, it still needs those things to be reinforced. By the disciplined moving of your mind to those things and reminding of yourself by your mind of those things. Love can grow cold. But the mind can rekindle and rewarm the heart by reminding it, reinforcing it, repeating to it the truths of the loveliness of Christ and the staggering greatness of his work toward us in his death, in his rising, and in his ascending and being seated at the right hand of God. I was um, watching uh, It's Daniel Mack on TikTok. Uh, Daniel Mack, I got attracted to the name because it was kind of like mine Uh, and Daniel Mack loves supercars and he goes and stops people who are in supercars at stop signs or stop lights and just says love your car what do you do and it's got millions of followers on TikTok and as I watched all of these supercars in this glorious Los Angeles kind of setting and I listened to these people oh yeah I invested in GameStop for a month and a half and made $20 million, so I bought the car. Guy's like 23, you know. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, I just dabbled in Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, I, and I'm just, I'm listening and looking at these cars. And my heart grew cold to God, and my heart began to covet these cars and how easily so many of these people had made their money. And then I stopped, and my mind said, wait a minute. The eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. His great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And I realized, I don't need those supercars. I have Christ to God. Are you tempted? Application number one, use the power of Christ's death and your unity with it. Are you tempted by sin? Know that you have the power to overcome it. When that does not work, stop and set your mind on things above. Remind yourself of all that Christ did for you, the glorious inheritance you will receive. Is the temptation temptation of something pleasurable? Let your mind inform your heart of the pleasures that are awaiting you in all eternity. If it's something you are fearing, if it's anxiety-producing and you want to run from it, and so you are tempted to fear, then let the gospel promises of Jesus being with you and Jesus upholding you and Jesus having you at the right hand of God give you the calm confidence in God's promises that you know are true and let them calm you. Are you feeling guilty? Read Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation and die to that condemnation. Or Romans five twenty one, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Have you fallen into shame and feeling totally distant from God? Know that the gospel has the resources to break that sense of shame. Second Corinthians 5:21 says, "This is true. For our sake, He made Christ to, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You are God's righteousness. He loves you. Are you losing your desire? Look to Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Meditate on his endurance and his continuing love for us and his continuing love to take our sin upon himself and rise again that he might bring us to himself and let it warm your heart for him. Men and women, don't make excuses. You have all the resources you need. And secondly... Don't neglect the habits of faith that strengthen your desire to access this power. Prayer is a pathway to to power. Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious for anything but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanks, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. You have the power. You have the pathway to access it. Set your heart on things above. Meditate, contemplate. Let your imagination run wild on the beauties of Christ. And then set your mind. Constantly remind yourself of the truths that God says about you when your heart wants to wander and build its own narrative of how God feels about you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. And I praise you for your goodness. And I pray now that we would... We would do this. We would set our hearts on things above. We would know that we've died and risen and are with Christ. We would take our mind and meditate on these things, drill these things home to us. Help us to do that, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we have time for just a few um, questions. We have, I think, over 10 in our Q&A here. I'll answer the rest of them offline, but we'll answer a couple of these live. Is resisting temptation considered suffering in your opinion? Yeah, you're suffering the onslaught of evil. Um, Generally speaking, for example, if you're experiencing physical suffering, Um, Say someone in your family has uh, cancer or is dying of COVID. You're experiencing a kind of physical suffering that is due to the brokenness of the world, which was caused by sin. But when you're suffering temptation, you're suffering the evil of the world directly assaulting your desires. So I would call it a kind of suffering. Still different from what we normally call suffering, but spiritually speaking, yes. And that verse you quoted, I think, is very fair. How do we as a modern church body balance the call to sin no more and our expectation of sanctification with the reality that we will continue to sin. Even the most elder Christians among us need a culture of loving accountability and forgiveness. Correct. You can't say everything when you say anything. One of the things I've been saying very consistently is that the pathway to holiness is slow and uneven and winding a little bit and it's not straight and it's not fast and we all wish it was. And we've talked a lot about that at our church. So we have to hold that true, that we're always going to battle sin. But what we don't talk about very much in this church, and one of the reasons we're talking about it now is we do have the power to stop sin. The Holy Spirit within us combined with the new self that has been created by Jesus has enough resources. And so what happens is when you talk about the one side, the reality of sin in in, in people's lives, we can comfort them, but we can also create a certain kind of lax attitude towards sin. And, and, And the gospel has this great realistic combination of if you sin, there's no condemnation. Go back to Jesus, experience the forgiveness again, but don't use that as an excuse next time to go, yeah, I'm gonna sin again and stop using the resources to not sin, you can progress. I have seen massive progress. It took years. Uh, Broken the power of lust and pornography in my life. Broken substantially the power of anger and impatience and irritability in my life. I am not complete, absolutely. But I am not the same person I was when I first became a Christian. There is a real power that has come. A real freedom that has come. Because I have been raised with Jesus, and so have you. So let's take sin seriously. Let's keep ourselves accountable truthfully. Let's stop making excuses. But when we do fall into sin, let's not turn it into condemnation. Let's go to the cross quickly. Because in Christ, there is no condemnation. He paid for all of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness to us. And I pray that you would bore into our souls this reality that we are dead to sin's condemnation because of Christ. So when we do sin, we can quickly go and receive the forgiveness. Psalm 32 says, when I confessed my sin to you and acknowledged my iniquities, you forgave the guilt of my sin. That is what the cross has done. But also let us not make excuses, thinking we have no power to stop sin. We do, because we have been raised. Help us to balance these two truths and move forward in godly confidence and godly humility. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.